there. You're listening to the DeCesare Group Podcast. I'm Jim DeCesare, and thank you for being here. This week, we're talking with my good friend, Dr. Kevin Modlin, about how the impact of international affairs affects our local economy. I'll have more details in just a moment. But first, I have a question for you. Have you checked out our newsletter, Soki Economic Development and Business News? Well, if not, check us out and subscribe at thedecesarygroup.com. And while you're at it, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and like us too. The DeCesare Group podcast is brought to you by the DeCesare Group, a full-service business consulting, development, and public relations firm. And our mission is simple, to provide business solutions and strategies to entrepreneurs and businesses so they can succeed and grow. Now, in this week's program, I recently sat down with Dr. Kevin Modlin. Kevin is the owner of Modlin Global Analysis, and his research focuses on international trade and security issues. As a congressional aide on Capitol Hill for six years, he has advised on politics, economics, and international affairs. He's probably one of the smartest people I know, and as a result, Dr. Modlin analyzes problems from multiple perspectives. So here's my conversation with international affairs expert, Dr. Kevin Modlin. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. Hey, it's so good to see you, and uh, we're just going to delve right into this. So what role do international companies play in shaping economic landscape of our region, and how does it contribute to job creation, innovation, and overall economic growth? Absolutely. So thank you again for having me on the podcast. International plays a significant role, and there's specific data that shows that over 500 facilities in Kentucky are tied to FDI investment, as well as 110K jobs. But that is not the full extent. When we start looking at the exports that come from Kentucky, it's over $30 billion worth of exports. That's a a lot of economic impact. It's a huge impact. And then if we start diving in and talking with individual firms, you'll start hearing stories about how intertwined they are with the international markets. So uh, over 500 companies, international companies in the Commonwealth, and and they're creating over 10,000 jobs. Is that correct? 110,000. 110,000. That's right. So I, I was only off a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But... But the, the economic impact for us is that, you know, those people are working, they're spending that money in the communities that they live in. But, um, and, and we have a large international presence right here in South Central Kentucky. I mean, you, you think about everything from Kobe to Sorry, the new uh, uh, battery plant that's coming to town. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about international companies, uh, Opla is right. a, another international company. So we do have a large international presence here. And so do international trade policies and agreements uh, impact the local economy? And are there specific industries or uh, sectors that are more affected than others when you when you look at that big picture? Absolutely. So we wouldn't see those export numbers of over hundred over. We wouldn't see those export numbers of over 30 billion Uh if there wasn't a rules of the road for how trade happens in the world around us. Specifically, an example that I've been following in the news lately is Europe is very concerned about China's policies with electric vehicles. Uh They're concerned about the possibility of having their uh, cars dumped in their markets. Okay. Okay. The U.S. doesn't talk about this any. The big difference is our trade policy with China. Okay. And when it comes to automotives, China's tariff is about 10%, and the U.S. is about 27%. 
Okay. So that is that creates this barrier that has a huge factor, and this is significant for our world economy, of course, whether it be the individual components, but of course, with the battery components as well. I got right? you. So it's it's uh, China, uh, Europe. Europe is concerned that uh, the Chinese electric vehicles are going to kind of inundate the market there because they have lower tariffs. Uh, compared to what we have in the U.S. Exactly. However, the U.S. companies mm-hmm. are partnering with Chinese companies to produce electric vehicles. That's true. So, so there is still a significant investment from China, right? To to some extent, and U.S. companies mm-hmm. that they're partnering together uh, to create these these new industries here. Mm-hmm. Whether it's an actually an actual full blown. Uh, battery plant or the components that go into the battery. Exactly. So there's a whole different framework of relationships there, and it's very significant, both the U.S. being having these ties with electric vehicle components, but as well as getting this access for rare earths that predominantly come from China, right? So Europe is in this bad box right now, Mm -hmm. is if they choose to restrict those components or restrict electric vehicles from China, they also, the Chinese can turn around and say, well, we won't sell you rare earths. So they have have an interesting leverage point. So when you say rare earth, what are you talking about? Rare earths are minerals that don't, aren't common in the natural earth and natural world, but they are particularly expensive Mm -hmm. and difficult to extract. They're used in electric batteries. So there comes to be our phones or our future cars. These are instrumental in, in accessing those. And there are deposits throughout the world, but right now China is the leader in extracting those. So I want to go off script here just for a few minutes because I know you you, you delve into international politics as well as uh, domestic politics. Yeah. So don't you think it's ironic that we have an administration, a current administration, that is so high on electric vehicles because they protect the environment, yet the components and the energy needed to not only produce but to power those vehicles uh, has a a pretty significant impact on the environment. Yeah, so all philosophies have tension points. Sure. Right? So that's That's a great way of putting it. (laughs) Especially when your policies interact with constituencies. Mm -hmm. So... And we know what those entail, but that is some trade-offs that the Biden administration will have to consider is, are they going to be more concerned about how they're produced and the sourcing? Are they going to be concerned about the overall output of those products, right? And I think ultimately consumers are going to drive that. Um, Yeah. Where we see the overall demand for those to look like is going to be big. And I also think that the fact that a lot of these electric vehicle companies, as well as other uh, green energy facilities are actually sprouting up in middle America, mm-hmm. that their voices are also going to have a significant say in how these policies are molded. Does that mean it'll be ideal for every person? Of course not. But sure. I think that that will have the overall momentum in that direction. Well, all right, I'm going to get back on script now. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, I just, I, I think there's a lot of irony in it. And uh, yeah. I wanted to, to highlight that we, for a second. I don't know if uh, irony would exist without politics. <laughs> true. So true. 
All right. So with, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say increasing globalization because we are at globalization. Mm -hmm. uh, with globalization of, of economies, what challenges and opportunities arise for local businesses? Absolutely. So I hear from a lot of firms talking about how they are affected by the relations among all these countries. And we can go into some specifics on that. But it is synonymous with our economy. And what we may see actually is not necessarily a decline in, in a huge tale of, um, of globalization, but we will see it slower effects mm -hmm. of it. We may see a lot more onshoring of products. And a lot of this has to do with labor costs and other factors mm -hmm. globally. So we will see both trade and some domestic production. Okay. This will coexist, I think, is what the outlook for the next few decades and as a general model for the United States and for Europe and for many countries. And, of course, uh, the impact on local businesses is? Of course, that's significant because if you have local producers of, of products and goods, those are cycling through the economy with jobs and everything, but it will also have different types of efficiencies and everything. So we're recognizing that just getting cheap labor in some places doesn't always have all the returns right yeah. so some of the domestic sourcing is going to be a, yeah. a part of this so but it's going to coexist with the global marketplace okay so the uh, the elephant in the room right now so yeah. to speak uh, on the the international stage are the tensions uh that are out there you have russia on on one front China on another front, and I'm sure there are others out there. Of course, the the war in the Ukraine, um, and it's it's having a trickle down effect. How does that impact uh, us at the local level? And are do you know of any recent examples? I know of one that we should be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. So, when I talk to companies, they are regularly concerned about heightened tensions with China, mm -hmm. and there is often this mindset that if there is a conflict with China then trade will stop. We kind of switch that off and on. If, if there's a conflict, then that will happen. Well, if we actually look at the conflict um, between Russia and Ukraine, there continues to be trade between NATO countries and Russia, right? In fact, they continue to buy natural gas. Right. That natural gas pipeline, in fact, goes through Ukraine, uh -huh. right? Again, the ironies of politics. So. What I think will happen and as these things develop is what is a more likely scenario is not that goods are unable to be accessed, is that the price can increase under different crisis scenarios. Mm. And I think that's a scenario that we need to prepare for more thoroughly than spending time worrying about goods not being accessible. Yeah. Okay. So if there is a crisis point, that starts to raise the risk premium. So we know from extensive research that uh, petroleum prices are affected significantly by crises in the Middle East, mm -hmm. right? So it's this risk premium as a factor, and I can definitely see how that could play out in U.S.-China relations going forward and how that will feed into these prices. So if there is a crisis, that can have a cost— if there's no war, there can be a cost. Yeah. So, 
and and a, an example of what's at least on the the China side of, of activities is uh, there was a recent battery plant project announced in Hopkinsville mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, getting some incentives from the Commonwealth. Well, that that project's been paused, right? Uh, and and it's all because of of those tensions and maybe some 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 of the actors that are involved uh, with that particular company. Uh, so that, uh, there are a lot of different factors involved, I'm sure, but it's rare that you see a state go, whoa, hang on. And, we, and we're seeing that in other mm-hmm. states, too, where they're they're looking at Chinese investment and going, hang on a second. We, we need to we need to take a time out here and uh, vet this a little more thoroughly. So we're seeing right. incentives being paused on, on certain projects now. Right. And we're seeing more and more states have conversations about who can invest in the United States, specifically if these companies have ties to the Chinese Communist Party and or the Chinese military. So that begs the question, you know, and I know you kind of alluded to this, but I'm going to break it down a little further. The the Chinese and U.S. trade relations, I mean, it's clear that they need us to buy their products. And it's, you know, for for the U.S. citizens, it's to have a standard of life and a way of life and having the products and goods that they want at any given time, a lot of that comes from China. Right. So, you know, it. I'm, I'm sure it's a delicate process, at least on the administration side, when they're out there, you know, trying to, to develop policies and and have relationships with foreign countries, especially China. But do you, do you really believe, and I'm just asking you, uh, that China wants to disrupt their relationship with the U.S., their trade relationship? I think if countries had a choice, they would always choose to trade as much as they could with each other. Yeah. And then politics have a way of intervening. Sure. Right? So what I think is important to note is that throughout the previous administration's negotiations with China, there were tariffs on steel and aluminum and a number of other products, Mm -hmm. and there still continue to be negotiations, right? right? Those tariffs are still in place, and with those tariffs in place, we've still had the highest volume of trade with China throughout, right? So again, there's tension, there's debate, there's friction points, and continuous trade flows. Yeah. So I try to uh, see how those combine, but also notice that for specific goods, those tariffs have been dramatic, right? So some wood that's imported in the United States has fallen dramatically because of those tariffs from China. So, it, And when we start, we can see on the total that it's increased dramatically, but in the individual cases, it feeds out in different ways. Yeah. So um, with the, uh, the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine, recently... Uh, there, there seemed to be the appearance of a possible coup, <laughs> coup, uh, it, that's kind of waned, I guess, mm-hmm. a bit. But it appears, and I'm, you know, clearly this is not something that I'm I study by any means. But it appears that um, Putin in Russia is losing some support, big time, and. There's some thoughts that, you know, even his own people are starting to think, man, there's something up. You know, this this is not the way we want to go. Do you have any thoughts on that or insight? Yeah, so the indestructible part of the image for Putin has been challenged significantly, Mm -hmm. right? 
Um, there's significant debate about how much this will affect China or Russia's relations with Ukraine, and will that actually spur Russia to break more deals with Ukraine, maybe resolve the war? I actually think the opposite is more likely because if his support is waning, he cannot compromise on that front. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think it's much more likely is the other powerful people in Russia, whether that be the provincial governors or oligarchs or other wealthy figures, will now have leverage they see in challenging Putin. Yeah. And will that over time challenge his overall power? I think that is kind of a more pragmatic view of how that will evolve. But regardless, it's 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 gonna be some must see T V over the next little while uh, watching Russia. Yeah, so just as we said, the, the ironies of politics, it's also unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. But I also think this is really consequential in our outlooks and how we see what goes forward. It's very likely the conflict will continue. It's very likely everything will have a state of attrition where both sides are firing munitions and it's hard for either side to make gains. I think this this event where with Wagner is going to have a new choice for Putin if he is going to call up as many forces as he would need for sustaining that conflict. Because how many of those forces would uh, play off and actually be more sympathetic to Wagner yeah. and now have this internal tension point that he has these two choices? Um, and, so, and, of course, Wagner is a very Russian name. <laughs> well, actually, the yeah. the origins of, of Wagner, if, if you may know it, as this military company in in Russia, the leader is a fan of Wagner, the classical composer. I got uh, you. The German classical composer. So there's a lot of suggestions and uh, emblems and everything else that actually have very uh, troubling roots uh, from fascism. I got you. In that era. So so a a lot of interesting things are happening over there. And I think it's important for us not to, to ignore it, you know, pay attention uh, especially if you're not watching the news, make sure you're, you're following what's happening, not only here in the U.S., but abroad as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your opinion, what steps can uh, our, our policymakers and business leaders take to leverage international affairs positively, mm-hmm. positively and boost economic development in Bowling Green and South Central Kentucky? Yeah, that's a great question. So first off, continue what's being done. For one thing, Kentucky is has these great labor source, a great place to live and work, great energy costs, mm-hmm. great transportation costs and access to hubs, and just maintain that good policies and everything that encourage that. Okay. And as we're seeing this global turmoil, that makes Kentucky look even more and more appealing. So So, there's always opportunity and chaos. Unfortunately, yeah, we're not responsible for that chaos. Sure. But there is an environment. So say, for example, in Europe, they are dramatically changing their energy policy. And it's accelerated by this war uh, and this conflict points with Russia. And that is increasing the overall energy cost throughout the the region. And therefore, it's more appealing to produce in other places where— they're heavy energy intense, right? So Kentucky can benefit from that. So yeah. every doing things well has benefits overall, right? So yeah. 
other so people keep doing what we're up. doing around here. I would suggest that that's a good start. And of course, being aware, like you said, of the global environment and the news and finding opportunity points and how to court those as well, yeah. which I know our communities are active with that anyway. So, uh, you know, and in in a lot of, I have a lot of economic developers that listen to this podcast, not only here in Kentucky, but throughout the, the Southeast uh, in an organization that I'm involved with. And I'll give them a shout out, the Southern Economic Development Council, yeah. and of course, the Kentucky Association for Economic Development, and all of our great economic developers in South Central Kentucky. In essence, you know, we are the uh, the Kentucky and the Southeast is where all the actions have it happening mm-hmm. with growth, mm-hmm. economic growth. And uh, I guess the best advice is, you know, those ladies and gentlemen out there that are doing that work every day just need to keep doing what they're doing and, uh, you know, growing their economies and growing uh, businesses and industries and, mm-hmm. and, you know, doing all they can to help create opportunities. Right. And I also think it's good to be aware of, of these changes. So I think it's also very important to note the dramatic changes that we're seeing in China. Mm-hmm. Right. So we noticed the dramatic closures throughout China and their response to COVID policy. But of course, that had a huge negative economic effect for the country. Sure. But while that's a significant one-time event, they have changed their policies. They are emphasizing more domestic consumption. So we have to expect that they will actually have smaller, less economic growth throughout time. So again, they're going to be part of this trading economy. Mm-hmm. But they will also be really interested in in their consumers at home. So if that fits the general model of economic output and economic activity, we can actually expect a smaller growth rate for China. Okay. So f- for the last two decades, we saw about eight to nine percent economic growth year over year. We may see that to be about four, three percent. Okay. And this has huge national security implications. This has huge implications for how markets operate uh, globally, right? So uh, that made me think of another question here that sometimes I I hear it talked about in the background a little bit, and that's about the population changes in Russia and China, Mm -hmm. the one-child policy. Uh, What kind of impact, if any, is that having? You know, I know Russia has an issue and so does China, and India is about to be, if not the most populated uh, country in, in the in the world right mm-hmm. now. So, uh, can you talk about that just a Absolutely. little bit? Absolutely. So that'll definitely affect where their demands are for different products. Mm-hmm. But there's also a significant flight of intellectual capital mm-hmm. leaving Russia and leaving China over these years, but it's been accelerated the last few. Okay. So that is going to really affect how small businesses develop, right? Those countries were already problematic for a lot of people who want to develop business. And just going forward, most people don't think that they have great opportunities on that front. But as far as your consumer demand and and interest, that's going to be really interesting to see how that evolves. But I think both the states are going to want to provide those staples and and interest for their public. But the public's going to probably be expecting more than what they're going to get. Okay. Um, So will that cause these tension points between populations and the government. Uh, well, we'll just see. I, th- I think China has benefited a lot from high economic growth, right? Mm-hmm. You can solve a lot of problems with high growth. Sure. You know, all communities know that. What will it look like when it's slower? Yeah. Right? 
because you also have the aged population uh, that's growing significantly and then the lack of new population Mm -hmm. uh it 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 has a huge impact and that's that's you know kind of everywhere Mm -hmm. but you know for for countries like china and russia it's it's a bigger issue right just because of some of their political policies that they had in place dealing with reproduction and reproduction policies and now they're revisiting chinese culture so china's having this robust debate about how much do they want to be exposed to the global world on a cultural level Mm -hmm. yeah and they're instituting interesting restrictions on their youth, basically preventing them from video games and other practices. And hey, good luck with that. Fi- <laughs> yeah, that, that might be the hardest thing to do in the world is, is take away that Xbox. But yeah, that is a big factor also to consider how they're going to evolve from those policies. And they're going to, I think, institute more restrictions on their population on what entertainment looks like, right? So they'll be less exposed to the Western markets in these ways, even though we're in a global system. Wow. So that's another thing to consider. Also, from an investment standpoint, we've been talking about investment in South Central Kentucky, but how the U.S. and the world is investing in China is going to change dramatically. They just changed an intelligence law that prohibits the sharing of economic data with outside entities, outside individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether it be sales or other economic data points, that is going to be considered intelligence data, not just general economic material. So we'll see how many people are charged under this, but it will have a cooling effect on normal transactions, right? So if a firm doesn't know clearly what's going on in China, they may decide to invest in other places or, as they say, de-risk. Will that impact international companies based in the U.S. that that share data internally? No. It would have to be data of interactions within China. Okay. Gotcha. Um, But, again, for any firm, they're going to be interested in that. Yeah, sure. So That's interesting. All right. So I've kind of asked you all the questions I I had on my list here. But before we started, you were talking about uh, the drumsticks that I use. Yes. So I, I got two pairs here with me and what what's your question so my question for you jim is which one is your favorite if well, that's possible well i typically use a pro mark 747 neil peart signature drumstick yeah. now that's not what this is but it is a pro mark 747 and it's made basically of japanese oak okay very good so and, have you ever considered opening up a company that makes drumsticks i have not no i'm surprised <laughs> well you know it's uh, uh i i do know uh, i'll use uh the bourbon industry for example that that you know white oak is what they use in the barrels yeah. of to age bourbon it has to be a new white oak barrel yep. charred yep. and and there is a you know a shortage of white oak yeah and so i, I would imagine that supplies such as japanese oak and this other pair here is a, a uh, hickory, mm-hmm. uh, those are probably hard to come by at times unless you have sources for those. Exactly. So if you were ever to consider opening a company, you could possibly source some of those woods domestically, but immediately you're going to be looking at global supply chains mm-hmm. and how variability in events can affect the price for that hickory or that oak. Right. And interestingly, China produces both. 
Okay. Right. So, so if there are disruptions on that front, as we said, that has affected the overall supply of that, that wood to the United States. So both of these pairs of sticks here could very well be made in the U S and it does say made, uh, hand finished in the U S Japanese Oak on it. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting, they're getting their Oak for this stick mm -hmm. from Japan. Right. Uh, or at least we think, you know, you can grow a Japanese oak anywhere. Many places, yeah, where <laughs> so, it's hospitable. Right? Yeah, and then the, the hickory sticks. So, uh, which, you know, it, I guess that applies to a lot of different products as well. So, exactly. you know, uh, they may be made in the U.S. And that's what I was referring to earlier. You know, that, that, that relationship with China in particular, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to... Um, break up with them you know we're dating and yeah. and it's serious yeah. it <laughs> uh, is and and you talk about bourbon you know mm -hmm. i know a lot of bourbon uh, bourbon uses rye mm -hmm. uh, a lot of rye gets brought in from overseas right so you know for american-made bourbon exactly and there is strong international demand uh throughout europe and asia for for our bourbon yeah. right like this is a huge yeah uh, it's a it's a huge export really. force, and yeah. uh, you know it's a huge product here in Kentucky. Yeah, but also I think it's important to think about how these global events just affect these prices, right? So for every producer in Kentucky and throughout the United States, they may or may not engage in direct trade with others, right? So we know Kentucky over four thousand firms engage in exports globally, right? Mm -hmm. But everyone is affected by these price changes. Sure. Everybody's affected by global events that affect those prices. So, again, it's, it's beneficial to both look at what's changing in the world, but also to prepare and make those plans because your competitors also have these issues. So the, the firm that has a plan benefits the most, yeah. right? The community that has a plan benefits the most from that. Yeah. Well, this has been great information, and I, I should let let our listeners know that if they want to hear more yeah. about what you talk about on a regular basis, you have your own podcast. I do have my own podcast. I have it through Substack, so Modlin Global at Substack.com. And I'm also doing a roundtable event in Bowling Green, Kentucky on July 17th at the Nicely Center Okay, at 2 p.m. Folks are welcome to come, and we can have a long conversation about international effects for firms okay and we'll put the put the links in the podcast notes for your yeah. podcast and we'll uh, mention this event as well so yeah. hey thanks for being on the program thank you jim it's good talking with you kevin. good talking to you again thanks to dr kevin modlin for taking the time to talk with us about how international affairs impact our economy thank you for listening and join us again next week for the decessory group podcast check out and subscribe to our newsletter too Soki economic development and business news at the decessory group.com and like and follow us on linkedin facebook twitter and instagram now make sure you download the decessory group podcast on your favorite podcasting platform to hear from industry leaders business owners and experts like kevin about the latest economic development and business activities in south central kentucky Today's program is produced by the DeCesare Group, a full-service business consulting development and public relations firm. Our engineer is the rejuvenated Reds fan, Justin DeCesare, and content contribution for Brooke Mattingly and Amy DeCesare. I'm Jim DeCesare. Thanks for joining us.